Welcome to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. This podcast series features conversations with leaders and innovators having a positive impact in our city. Let's get started. Your journey starts here. How will artificial intelligence impact every single one of our lives? Amy Webb is a quantitative futurist who makes connections to determine where emerging technologies could lead us. Her new book, The Big Nine, takes a look at the top nine companies that will determine how artificial intelligence is used and how those decisions could lead to an optimistic or catastrophic future. Amy Webb, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you are a futurist. For anyone who is not quite sure what that means, it's an awesome title, but tell me exactly what it means. Sure. So I'm a quantitative futurist. My job is not to make predictions, but instead to make connections using data-driven models. So I look for signals in the present across different industries and areas. Uh, I model emerging trends. Those trends are what we use to calculate the trajectories and the timings of all different kinds of things, like what might the future of AI look like? What might the future of transportation look like? What might the future of cities look like? Mm -hmm. And then after calculating those trajectories, the goal is to reduce uncertainty so that everybody can make better decisions. And the way that we do that is by developing data-driven scenarios And then at the end of this big, long process, we sort of figure out, given what we know to be true and the data that we have and the evidence that we have, what is a reasonable, plausible, preferred future? So in the best of all possible worlds, given where we're at, which is not, does not mean like utopia. It means we're going to be realists here. Sure. What plausibly could happen? And then we work backwards to figure out what are all the different steps that we need to operationalize that future. So most of what a futurist does is research and modeling. Sure. And all of this is done in the name of longer-term planning. Mm-hmm. How or why is it so important for us to kind of get a look at what potentially could happen in the future and how we can potentially change mm-hmm. where we're going? Right. So I think you know this has been true of every cycle of change humanity has had to endure, whether it is uh, geopolitical uprising or civil unrest or technological change, we go through these cycles. And every single time we go through a cycle, it feels new and novel. We feel like we're the first generation dealing with this cataclysmic change. And it starts to feel like things are accelerating. And like, at some point, we've lost control. And then you wind up with a couple of different camps. You have the, well, we can't possibly figure out what's next. So let's not even bother trying. Or, oh my gosh, there's so much change on the horizon. Everything is going to be upended. Now we're in fight or flight mode because our limbic systems have taken (laughs) over and we're going to start making really dumb decisions. Uh And, And we get fixated on the now. And the problem with a culture where nowism is the predominant default mindset is that it prevents us from seeing the bigger picture. So I would argue that America is very much a nation of nowists. And we've always been that way culturally. However, in this era of social media and what feels like uncertainty coming at us from every different direction, whether it's 
how we read or how we watch TV or what's even what's happening in the city of Baltimore, where we have local political unrest Mm -hmm. uh, seemingly every three years. Right. (laughs) Um, You know, it feels like we're spinning out of control. And the best way around that is to position yourself so that you can confront uncertainty head on, not using emotion or gut, but using data. And it's something everybody can do. And in fact, there are cultures where this is just sort of what people do all the time. Mm -hmm. So China and Japan, two places that I used to live, they have a culture of foresight and they are constantly thinking about and actively planning for the future. Can I share a really quick, interesting story Please with do. you? So I have a friend who's a Buddhist monk who works at a temple in Kyoto. And I was there last summer just hanging out. And he said, let me show you the new roof. So I walk around to the, you know, this is like one of the, it's exactly what you're imagining. It's like a beautiful, old, mm-hmm. you know, amazing Japanese temple. And uh, we get we get to this room and he has me look up and I'm looking up and I'm like, yep, it's a beautiful roof made out of some kind of wood. And he said, this wood was not created by me. It was not planted by the previous generation of priests. This wood came from a bamboo forest that had been planted more than a century ago, specifically for this particular moment in time when there was going to need to be a roof repair. And, you know, in raising bamboo, I mean, you see a lot of bamboo around Baltimore and it kind of is irritating because it kind of grows like a Mm -hmm. weed. But to cultivate it so that it can be used to make things is actually kind of a difficult process. So a century ago, a bunch of monks cultivated, nurtured, care for this bamboo forest. The generation after them harvested, you know, this is like hard labor. They harvested this wood and stripped it and prepared it. The generation after that had to then mold and prepare it and do all of the things and cure it so that all of these years later, they would have something that they could use. My point in telling you the story is that thinking about and actively working on the future isn't just about cool sci-fi stuff. Mm-hmm. It's about making a lot of short-term sacrifices in the name of longer-term collective good. And you see that all over the place in Asia. We just don't have a culture of that in the United States. And I will tell you, I see zero evidence of that here in Baltimore, which is a real shame. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like um, is America just more emotionally charged rather than data-driven? Do we react in a different way than they do yeah, over there? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I've thought about this a lot. My thinking on this is that we are a new country. And most of, you know, my family arrived here two generations ago, mm-hmm. immigrants, you know, scrappy immigrants who had to work really, really hard and probably felt like they couldn't afford to think about the much farther future. Now, the reason that they worked hard was so that my mom could go to college Mm -hmm. and her two brothers could go to college and they were very, very poor. So just getting to that point was incredibly difficult. You know, and my parents also worked really, really hard. Um, So, you know, I think to some extent we're new, And we have lots of different cultures and lots of different ideas. And so that has probably focused us a little bit more on what's right in front of us. And on top of that, we are being assaulted from every turn with information that may or may not be something we can trust. And so our, you know, our senses 
are heightened and much more attuned to what's immediate. Therefore, when we see or hear about new technologies or new approaches to the economy, things that are different, we either fetishize them, Mm -hmm. you know, or our inclination is to say no. Um, So I think the challenge is that we are not a monoculture in the United States. Mm -hmm. Most schools don't include longer-term thinking and logic and even philosophy as part of their curricula. Mm -hmm. Our workplaces, you know, there is no chief futurist position in most organizations. And our federal government no longer has a long-term planning department. We did years ago. It was called the Office of Technology Assessment. And they're Basically, their their main job was to educate policymakers mm-hmm. on the science, you know, and math and tech and health and medicine, all those things of, you know, downstream implications of the decisions they weren't going to make. But that got defunded by Newt Gingrich in the 90s. So we don't have a culture of it here. And if anything, I think the prevalence of tools for immediate gratification have moved us further and further away from introspection and reflection, which are key components of long-term strategic thinking. Mm -hmm. That's a little scary. (laughs) Well, what's scary, so here's the thing, like for me, uncertainty is not scary, you know, and for people who feel anxious or panicky, Mm -hmm. which I think a lot more people are feeling these days, that is tied to a a sensation that they have lost control Mm -hmm. or that There's so much they don't know. There's so much uncertainty um, that it makes everybody really nervous. I can't predict what the future is going to be, but I feel confident in confronting uncertainty because I've got the tools to do it. Mm -hmm. And my feeling is everybody could have the tools to do the same thing, and it would probably all make us feel a lot better, and we would make smarter decisions. Sure. Because the worst time to make a decision is when you're under duress. Exactly. It's like going to the grocery store when you're hungry. Actually, that's a perfect example. That's totally right. You know, it's akin to uh, going to the grocery store without a list when you're really hungry. Mm -hmm. There are too many things happening in your head, some of which are your own fault, some of which are chemical, Mm -hmm. for you to be clear-headed and strategic about... I mean, here's why that's like like such a great example. Because the result of you doing that is going to be that you're making purchases that are meaningful to you in this particular moment. Mm -hmm. And then three days from now, you're going to realize that you forgot to buy eggs. Yes. (laughs) Right? Or that you're out of milk or any other number of things. Those are all preventable circumstances. And what's going to happen? You're going to have to go to a place where maybe it's more expensive, Mm -hmm. or you're going to have to shift uh, some other activity that you had planned. You know, you're going to cause future disruption, right? Um, So that's a perfect analogy, I think, for the situation that we're in right now. The Enoch Pratt Free Library is now offering video games. From educational games for children to fun games for kids and adults, you can get them for free at select Pratt locations. You're free to be more at the Pratt. The new book is about artificial intelligence. For someone that is not up on all technology, how do you explain, first of all, what artificial intelligence is and how it impacts everyone at this point. So artificial intelligence is not a thing. Mm -hmm. It's sort of an umbrella term for many different technologies. And the interesting thing is that it's been in some form of development now for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. In the modern era, artificial, and actually since the beginning, 
artificial intelligence is very basically and very simply a system that has been designed to make decisions using data. Mm -hmm. That's it. Now, obviously, the real world uh, use cases for AI have become far more complicated. Sure. But, you know, if you go back to uh, the 1950s, when there was a lot of thinking around using machines to generate language, Mm -hmm. to have conversations, there was a ton of really popular sci-fi that was making the rounds at that point. So people kind of got fixated on walking, talking robots as the future of AI. And I think the challenge is that while everybody has been looking on the horizon for a walking, talking robot, the real AI has been showing up, Mm -hmm. right? And it's been here. Uh, And in fact, you use, uh, all of us in this room are currently using AI because we all have cell phones. Yep. Right. And the microphones, yours just talked. I know. Um, And the, uh, and the microphones that we're using. It heard you. It did hear me. (laughs) Did it hear me? What what was it? I'm curious. What just. It just said hello. I think I hit the button and it said hello. It was Siri said hello. Right. So, but Siri is a good example Mm -hmm. of a modality of AI. So Siri itself is not AI. Your phone is not AI. Your phone is the container for it. Mm -hmm. But Siri is an implementation where you can speak to it. So Siri, for people who don't know, is the digital agent on iPhones. So it's only available for Apple. Uh, And actually, Apple didn't invent Siri. They they bought it. It it existed in, in a different form for a while. But this is a digital agent that has learned from a giant data set how to respond to questions and commands. Mm -hmm. And the questions and commands that you might ask it have been preloaded and tested and are increasingly learning from us what responses we find most appealing for whatever potential reason it might be. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. Um, The car, if you have a car that has a little screen on it when you back up to show you you obstructions, Mm -hmm. the little beep beeps, that yeah. sound if you come. So that's AI. All of these things are examples of artificial narrow intelligence. Mm-hmm. And most people are like, that doesn't jibe with what I've seen on TV, you know, and in sure. the movies. Yep. It's interesting. I feel like we're seeing it a little bit more and more now because there's the Amazon Alexas and all of those home helpers. But we talk about how much data they're collecting on you. And you've talked about how it's going to go even further than that, right? Right. So I think the key thing to bear in mind is AI in its current form is not static. So there's mining, refining, productizing, optimizing, Mm -hmm. using our data for a variety of different purposes. And a lot of the data that are being collected are totally invisible and in no way obvious to the average person. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about where you're clicking online or how you're having conversations. You know, there are cameras that look at your image and learn from your image over time. There are all kinds of tools that collect biometrics uh, and your behavioral biometrics. So this is not just things like your fingerprint or your iris, but as you type, do you tend to type N's and L's in a particular cadence, right? Mm. Do you, on a phone, tend to fat finger certain words, mm-hmm. right, when you're when you're typing? 
do you tend to click and toggle between Facebook and some other particular page? Like there's literally hundreds of different points of data that we are shedding. Mm -hmm. And the challenge with all of this is that, you know, are all of these points of data not obvious to us, but the companies who are mining our data are not transparent in any way. Sure. So you might ask, well, who are these companies and why do they care? So there are essentially nine companies. Yep, the big nine. The big nine. Name of the book. That overwhelmingly own the lion's share of patents. They are well capitalized. Mm -hmm. They are able to attract the best talent uh, from universities. They also have the best partnerships with universities. You know, it's their custom frameworks that we are using. It's their digital agents that we are interacting with. And, you know, it's also their cloud services that eventually AI will live on. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the current form, it's their cloud services where a lot of the computing is is being done by perhaps the companies where you work. And so the challenge is that we've seen a tremendous amount of consolidation among just a few players. Sure. And the people who are making decisions about all of this data and who are building the algorithms don't look like or think like the average person. Mm-hmm. Um, it tends to be a fairly homogenous group. And also, not all of these companies are based in the US. So three are in China, mm-hmm. six are here in the United States. The Chinese companies, most Americans have never heard of. Sure. They are Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. Mm-hmm. And the big six companies in the US, I call the G Mafia. So that's <laughs> Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, IBM, and Apple. Mm-hmm. I don't believe these companies are inherently evil, although I'm starting to change my mind on Facebook. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't believe that they have malintent for us. I think that just we've sort of, you know, in the United States, the sort of move fast and break things ethos, mm-hmm. which is fairly pervasive in Silicon Valley and further north in Seattle and Bellevue, sure. where uh, Microsoft and Amazon are based. You know, that ethos of just pushing forward and, and doing stuff and if necessary, asking for forgiveness later on, mm-hmm. is starting to butt up against the very real and plausible future outcome of regulation, right? And sure. so I think lawmakers are tired of all of the stories, and so they may be pushing toward regulation. And th- this is setting, I think, I think this is all starting to set us up for a future that is untenable. Mm-hmm. How different do the American companies treat AI versus the Chinese companies? You make some really interesting points in your book about uh, sort of what the focuses are for both of those different groups. Right. So, you know, in the United States, capitalism reigns supreme, right? So speed is prioritized over safety, um, Mm -hmm. not just among the big tech players, but in a lot of companies. We've seen some other examples of this recently, Boeing, Mm -hmm. for example. And this is because these are publicly traded companies that have a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders. While there is a lot of consolidation, people misunderstand consolidation in a free market. Mm -hmm. Within a highly consolidated ecosystem, competition becomes more intense. Mm -hmm. So because there are fewer players, but the stakes are higher, and you have less ability over time to consolidate power using mergers and acquisitions and everything else. So the challenge is that as consolidation happens, you know, Google's trying to get you to use their AI framework, Mm -hmm. which is called TensorFlow, uh, TensorFlow 2. 
you know, Amazon is fighting to get people to use their AWS cloud service, which has AI as a piece of it. Mm -hmm. These may be open source frameworks. However, once you get all of your data into these systems, whether you're a company or if you're a household and you've bought a bunch of A-words, I don't like to say her name out loud because I don't (laughs) want, for people listening at home, I don't want to set it off. Oh, Um, yes. Right. So let's say you're (laughs) using Amazon's A-word device with the glowy blue ring. You know, once you get locked into one of these systems, it becomes really difficult or or just so inconvenient that you don't want to bother to swap out to something else, Mm -hmm. right? You know, so that's the situation that we face in the United States. And the challenge, the real challenge, is that our federal government has had no real strategy on AI in this administration, but also in the previous administration. Mm -hmm. So um, the previous administration toward the end did release a fairly robust policy paper on AI, but it was towards the end of of Obama's presidency and there's going to be nobody left to you know, it was like highly unlikely. Right. So it's great that it exists. And in fact, it became the basis for China's AI (laughs) policy, which is, you know, but we have no national strategy and we haven't had any on AI. We don't have like a department of AI. We don't have a ministry of AI. Mm -hmm. You know, for years, the federal government's Funding for basic research into technology and science has been stripped away. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not entirely true of military applications, sure. but like for everyday use. So, you know, the sort of way that things have gone for, you know, for decades now is that we have three capitals in the United States. We have Washington, D.C., where the government is. Mm-hmm. We have Silicon Valley and uh, North, Seattle and Bellevue, where our tech capital is. Mm-hmm. And we've got New York City, where the financial capital is. And I would argue that they're in a codependent relationship, all three of them, where they share equal amounts of power, just in different ways. And they all think that they're number one. <laughs> but that sets us up for serious problems because it means that not only do we not have some kind of national strategy mm-hmm. or a common enemy that might unite everybody, There's no collaboration. Instead, what we have um, is this sort of antagonistic relationship, or on the best of days, it's transactional. And nobody's thinking about the collective farther future. Nobody thinks about AI as a public good. The opposite is happening in China. Sure. So in China, you have a culture of long-term thinking. You have a population that is about to go through the biggest economic shift, uh, positive shift, with upward mobility, it's about to happen at a scale never seen before in modern human history. Mm-hmm. So there is an incentive within the government to maintain control over this massive group of people spread across a very large geographic footprint who are about to have more money than any previous generation, right? Who have not been completely shut out from the outside world, who have the ability to travel. Mm-hmm. There's an incentive to try to maintain control. And you've got a leader who's super smart, Xi Jinping, very smart guy, Mm -hmm. and understands technology and has been connecting the dots. So in addition to working on AI, and by working on AI, I don't just mean that they're like stealing IP, which they've been doing. Mm -hmm. But the thing that kind of everybody's missed is that China has become an innovator in its own right. And part of what they're innovating in is tech, 
part of what they're innovating in is policy. Mm -hmm. So China has a textbook that's about to become a national textbook. They've been rolling it out slowly for kindergartners to learn the basic fundamentals of machine learning and AI. Wow. Right? I mean, think about the city of Baltimore where we've got schools that like can't afford books, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a fundamentally different approach. But they've also tethered the developmental track of AI to other initiatives like the Belt and Road Initiative. So this is a economic stimulus plan that sort of follows the old Silk Road route throughout Asia. And the idea is to try to capture new market share along this old route. So they've been doing things like in emerging markets, building bridges and fixing like the roads, fixing physical infrastructure. But they're also deploying 5G and they're laying fiber Hmm. and they are deploying Chinese made phones and they're deploying some of their data collection techniques to help monitor citizens. So, and it's not like this is just happening in a few places. There are 58 countries currently that are signed up for various pilots. You know, to me, while we're trying to sort things out as capitalism runs amok here in the United States, it's pretty clear that China's gone a a different direction and that they are in the process of building a new world order, one in which China is at the helm. Mm -hmm. While we in the United States are trying to sort out, you know, who should be in charge of what, and but we also have political scandals happening mm-hmm. at every you know level. Every level. <laughs> That's right. And in the meantime, Canada has released its own principles for what AI should and shouldn't do. Uh, McKinsey has a series of reports on exactly when the workforce will change and who's going to be out of work. There's an evangelical Christian group, no joke, that has codified its own AI principles. So. If you've got conflicting pieces of information now coming from all of these different directions, and if I'm Google, right, I'm going to be like, thanks so much for your input, everybody. We're going to keep doing what we've always been doing, Mm -hmm. right? So this is a a problem. And it doesn't feel urgent to everyday people because they don't feel like they are losing currently or that they have anything to lose. And... Again, if we're a nation of nowists and we're so, and you know, there's Baltimore has serious economic issues. Mm-hmm. So if you're somebody who's just dealing with trying to get through life, you're probably not stopping to question when you download that free app just sure. to keep your kid from crying. Mm-hmm. You're probably not questioning what's happening with all of that data on the back end, mm-hmm. right? We have serious problems to contend with. Join the Pratt Library Summer Challenge. June 12th through August 14th. Read books, attend programs and win prizes like t-shirts, Orioles tickets, and more. Programs available for all ages. Sign up at your local Pratt Library branch or visit prattlibrary.org. What is the, I guess I'll ask the, the tough one first, what is sort of the catastrophic way of looking if things keep going this way and you've written about how wars could be fought on the AI front going forward, what's the sort of catastrophic view if we continue going the way we're going? Right, so one of the tools that a futurist uses to try to make sense of the future, but also to get other people to act using data and evidence mm-hmm. versus their cognitive biases and guts Uh, One of the tools that we use are called scenarios. Mm -hmm. They describe plausible futures, and they are written using a kind of a formula. They are data-driven. And the point of a scenario is to build a narrative 
to tell a story, mm-hmm. to help people understand what might happen if certain decisions are made today. So it's kind of like a storytelling version of an if this, then that Mm -hmm. statement. So in the book, I I have three sets of scenarios that range 50 years in time. Sure. So there's an optimistic framing, a neutral or pragmatic framing, and a catastrophic framing. Mm -hmm. Um, The optimistic framing does not mean, you know, Pollyanna, the best (laughs) of all possible worlds, everything is sunshine and, and rainbows. The optimistic framing simply means we acknowledged the situation that we're in. We built good models using the best data. We thought very, very broadly. And we made the best possible choices that we could given the current circumstances. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yep. The neutral framing is we preserve the status quo. Mm -hmm. And the catastrophic framing is, you know what? We heard the signals. We said... I feel you, (laughs) but we're going to do our own thing, Mm -hmm. okay? So the catastrophic framing in this case is that there is no collaboration or coordination among the big nine companies. They go it alone, um, but this happens at at an exacerbated pace. And um, China continues to amass power and continues to deploy things like its social credit system, which monitors everyday citizens and drastically reduces many people's ability to move around and buy things, buy travel. You know, the companies here in the United States find over a period of time that their current setup doesn't even work. And we start to see consolidation happen between some of those companies. Mm -hmm. The G-Mafia become the GA, Google, Amazon, and Apple. Mm -hmm. Our data are not portable. They are not transparent. Basically, these companies constantly have to contend with uh, calls for regulation, calls for boycotting. But of course, by that point, uh, it's too late. And in the process, as we transition away from artificial intelligent systems that perform narrow tasks at the same level as humans or better, to systems that are behaving unpredictably by design, Mm that are capable of more generally intelligent activities, we start to realize that there are not decisions that are being made by these systems, but rather choices. And the choices that are being made are ones in which we continually find ourselves in bad situations because the AI starts behaving badly. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to totally give away the ending. Sure, yes. But... This escalates, and we find that uh, we are, in fact, in a war. It's not the kind of war anybody was preparing for. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that the first shots have been fired when our power starts getting cut intermittently. When the internet goes out, we don't know why, mm-hmm. and we can't figure out when it's going to happen next. When there seem to be glitches in the market, when we start to get locked out of our microwaves, Um, You know, and ultimately we realize that China has waged a new kind of war on the United States and all of our allies, one that we never saw coming. And all of the economists who said, you know, this will never happen because our economies are too interlocked, forgot that in the process of amassing all of these different geopolitical partners, China now has scale on its side. Mm -hmm. So they don't need to depend on 
these other Western countries, which have vastly different views on democracy versus China's brand of, of communism, but that the old models no longer apply. And at that point, it is too late. And there are some adjacent factors that complicate matters that I write about, uh, which include significant changes to climate, mm. um, problems with the global supply of food, and the ability for all of us to survive. Mm -hmm. It's not good. It's very bleak. Yeah. But there are, I mean, you call this book a warning and a blueprint. Mm -hmm. um, so it is hopeful in that there are steps that can be taken yeah. right now. That's right. So by the time that you get through that catastrophic scenario, you're you're not going to feel good. And I know <laughs> that it's, well, you know, again, like I, it's not written to sensationalize the situation. Mm -hmm. This is what the data say, mm -hmm. right? There's no getting around it. You can choose to ignore them at your own peril. However, if people keep looking at, you know, decision makers will look at spreadsheets or they'll feel like AI is far out in the future. They'll fail to make um, decisions. So scenarios are meant to make some of this feel more urgent mm -hmm. and, and something that deserves focus right now. So with that in mind, after you read that catastrophic scenario and you feel sick to your stomach, <laughs> what immediately follows is a blueprint for the future, mm -hmm. how to fix what's on the horizon. And there's a ton of things that can be done mm -hmm. that range from individual steps that you and I could take to better ways for companies to make decisions mm -hmm. to big policy and plans for our governments. So just starting from the, what can I as a person sure. do? One person against these nine giant companies. Right. Um, so Vint Cerf, who's one of the founders of the internet and co-invented the TCPIP protocol and is a genuinely lovely human being, mm -hmm. has a terrific analogy about significant change and in individual actions. And so the way his story goes is, you know, you see a big uh, giant boulder on a mountain and you're just, you're at the bottom of this mountain in your village. And you sort of notice one day, the boulder's been cool, right? But then one day it looks like, I think that boulder is moving, <laughs> right? And then a little bit more time goes on and that Boulder looks like maybe it's moving a little bit more. And at some point, probably too late in the process, you realize, oh, that boulder is actually moving. And not only is it moving, it's headed straight to my village. At that point, you and your villagers, I don't care how strong you are, are not going to be able to stop mm -hmm. this boulder, which is coming straight at you. Mm -hmm. But there's a different way of approaching this, rather than through brute force, through clever thinking. So if you had a pebble and you marched up the mountain, and you put it in just the right spot, you wouldn't prevent the boulder from coming down, but you might be able to divert it. Mm -hmm. And maybe at that point, it wouldn't completely miss your village, but it might miss like part of it. Mm -hmm. Then if you had another villager come and put another pebble, right? And, and you got kind of got everybody to do this. Eventually, that boulder will make its way down, probably more slowly, and it'll completely miss the catastrophic end. Mm -hmm. So what I'm advocating everybody do because you can't just rage against the big tech machine, sure. right? Is to figure out what are all the different pebbles in front of you that you could pick up and start making your way up the mountain. Mm -hmm. The easiest one is just know what AI is. Sure. I mean, that seems silly and inconsequential, but if every single person listening to us could describe correctly what AI is, mm -hmm. what it isn't, what it actually does, 
and why it matters, that alone would solve a huge part of the problem that we are currently in. Mm -hmm. Because we would stop having our focus set on the fantastical, and instead we would be much better at making just practical decisions on a daily basis, mm -hmm. right? So that's, that's the first thing. Another pebble that anybody could easily pick up is to just be smarter about all these devices that you're using, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, if there's a, an app that you're using on your phone and part of the cool function of the, and it's free, mm -hmm. right? And there are ads on it, yeah. right? And it asks you to scan your face so that you can see some cool thing happening with your face, you should stop and say, well, who might also be accessing this information and for what purpose? And if you can find the answer to that and you're okay with it, great, mm -hmm. go ahead and use the app. If not, then don't use the app, mm -hmm. right? So there's many, many things that we could be doing, you know, in addition to making demands of the, the companies that you use, the products that you use for transparency. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing that you can do. And also being smarter when you go to the polls. So, you know, at the moment, there are some calls to regulate big tech companies, and that may feel really good. You may like feel like somebody is fighting your fight, but regulating big tech companies is not only completely impractical at this point, it could cause further problems down the road. Sure. So demand of the people who are running for office smarter approaches, right? Not brute force pebbles. Mm -hmm. So there's a ton of things that individuals can do. You know, if you're a company, you can't, you know, from here, this point forward, you cannot make your decisions on a cost basis alone. So a lot of companies wind up choosing Amazon Web Services over Google's product or Microsoft's Azure cloud products. Mm -hmm. Because um, they're cheaper, yep, and they have really amazing customer service. Mm -hmm. AWS is like unreal; mm -hmm. they're amazing, right? But again, <laughs> you have to ask smart questions. So, what are you giving up in the process? If you decide you want to port your stuff somewhere else, how easy is that actually going to be? Sure, right. So, there's a bunch of questions businesses need to ask. And as far as the government is concerned, we obviously have to do a much better job of thinking about the future, but we cannot go in alone because AI doesn't know geographic boundaries. So we have to incentivize using totally different ways and approaches. We have to incentivize the big tech companies to collaborate. We have to build guardrails, uh, not regulations. Mm -hmm. um, and we have to give them incentives to do risk modeling in advance and to do some of this testing. You know, if a company, if a big company stops to say, before we release this product, we're going to take eight months to figure out all of the possible ways this could go wrong, you know, and to figure out where all of the bias is and where all of the problems is, um, investors don't like that. Mm -hmm. And there's this rush to get commercial products into market. So we have to figure out a way to incentivize and reward companies for doing the risk assessment in advance, mm -hmm. which is only going to be accomplished if we have, you know, many different governments working together to make that happen again, not through punitive regulation, but through positive incentives. Mm -hmm. The book is The Big Nine. It is truly fascinating. Amy Webb, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. The Pratt Hamden branch is getting a makeover. Major renovations are underway but you can still access library services nearby at the Hamden Family Center. 
stop in for weekly story times, pick up books on hold, get help on the computer, and more. More details at prattlibrary.org. I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow the Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another Free to Be More conversation. Thanks for listening.